Our scripture reading from today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I read from the New Revised Standard Version. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out. And take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Word of God for us this morning. So I thought about this miracle, and I thought about how we understand things, and how we trend to analyze things based on patterns. Now, if you've been watching football, you know about the different schemes, right? The drawback, the uh, quarterback sneak, all these different plays that when somebody says them, if you watch football long enough, you kind of know what they're going to do, right? When they start talking about the option play or the, all these different things, if you watch football, the minute they call that play, you kind of know what's going on because you have become familiar with the schemes of the game. Well, when it comes to Jesus, we have to understand that people have been studying his miracles for a very long time. People have been taking all of the miracle stories of Jesus and trying to understand and analyze them and put them into patterns and try to grasp at how these miracles came about and how they were done. And so when you look at the scripture, you look at it from the point of view of those who have already seen the healing of the blind man, the healing of the paralyzed man, the, 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 the raising of Lazarus, all these other miracles. And so people look at this miracle and they try to apply that structure or scheme that they've used for the others to be able to understand it. And the scheme is pretty simple. It's a miracle scheme. It's the story, the way these stories are analyzed. The setting is established. What's going on? What is there? A need arises, whatever the need might be. And then a miracle addresses the need. And then there is a response to the miracle. 
Now, if you look at most of Jesus' miracles, pretty much almost all of them, they follow that similar pattern. These elements are present in many of the stories. But if you were to take this miracle story of Jesus and only break it down into those components, you would miss the incredible symbolism of the first miracle of Jesus. You see, the story is oozing with symbolism if we pay attention. If you look at verse 1, it says that the wedding took place three days after. And immediately as a Christian, when we think three days, what do we think about? Anybody? Resurrection. Immediately when you hear the word three days, you immediately think about what Jesus did on the cross, the fact that he was buried in a tomb, and three days later he was raised from the dead. So immediately you're cued in into that idea. And then there's the mention of wine. And immediately you go back to when Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples. And immediately you begin to think about the connection of the wine with the blood of Jesus and the pact, the new covenant that Jesus established through his own sacrifice. But if that's not enough, we're talking about a wedding and a banquet. How many references in the New Testament, particularly towards Revelation, do we have about a banquet being prepared by God as the bridegroom that comes to collect his church and his people. And so immediately all of these symbolisms come to mind as we begin to read the story and every detail begins to clue us in a little bit more about what the story is about. But let's be good theologians and break it down following the pattern. The first part is a setting is set in place. The wedding takes place in Canaan, Galilee. And we're told that Jesus and his disciples and his family were invited to the wedding. Now, I want to ask you, who do you invite to your wedding? Total strangers? Who do you invite? Family, friends, close relatives, extended family? And so that tells us right away that when we talk about this wedding where all of these people are invited, there has to have been some kind of family connection. There has to have been some familiarity between the people holding the wedding and the family of Jesus. Because you don't just invite the whole family, and his family was big. You don't invite the whole family to the wedding unless there's a connection and so here we have Jesus and his whole family attending a wedding banquet for somebody they knew, somebody they were familiar with, somebody that could possibly even be extended family. And a problem occurs, a need arises. They run out of wine. And you say, what's the big deal? So they're out of wine. But what you have to understand that in Jewish weddings, the celebration was not short. It was days sometimes of celebrating a wedding. And that meant that during that whole time, you had to have drink and food for the guest. And when you ran out of wine, it meant the celebration had to be cut off. Everybody had to be sent home. 
And you don't want to be that family that ran out of wine at the wedding. How many of us have been in weddings and if we're a part of it, one of the biggest concerns is we're going to run out of food. Nobody ever does, but we all worry about that. And they worried about running out of wine. And so this was a real problem. This was a real need. And when the need arises, Mary, the mother of Jesus, goes to him and says, there is no wine. Now, I want you to notice, she doesn't tell him what to do. She doesn't tell him, hey, do something to fix this. She simply brings to his attention that there is a need. She simply points out that there is a situation and I don't know about you, but normally when I bring a situation to somebody's attention is because I have a belief that they can do something about it. Otherwise, why mention it? Why would I bring something to you if you can do nothing about it? She must have believed that Jesus could do something about this deficit, that somehow, some way, Jesus could do something. And so she reports the need to him. Now, Jesus' response could seem a little short. He turns to her and says, woman, you know, what is this to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Now, when you hear that, you immediately think, oh, you shouldn't talk like that to your mama. Immediately, you think that that seems rude, but... Jesus was simply pointing out to Mary that there was a timing involved in the revelation of him as the Messiah and as the Son of God. And that involved miracles, that involved signs and wonders, and that that time was not quite there yet. And he just points it out. And, and you know, that phrase that he uses is a common phrase in Semitic culture, which basically meant it's not really our problem that they ran out of wine. Now, it would have been easy for Mary to just go, okay, son, fine, we'll move on. But she doesn't address Jesus again about the wine. Parents, we need to learn about this. You don't have to nag your children to death. She just mentions it to him and then moves on and goes over to the servants that are there at the wedding banquet. And she says to them, Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Sometimes when we report our need to God, and he tells us that the timing is, might not be right, that it might not be the hour for that miracle to happen, we immediately begin to tell God how we want the miracle done and when we want it done and by what specifications we want it done. And God goes, hey, hey, I'm God, you people, I got this. And she basically just left it up to Jesus to act. She put it in his hands. She didn't direct him. She didn't tell him how to do it. She didn't even talk back to him after that. She simply expressed the need, put it in Jesus' hands, and then told the servants, do whatever he tells you. How many times do we ask for a miracle, but we aren't willing to do whatever Jesus tells us to do? 
We ask for a miracle, but we want it to be more like magic. Just make it appear, Lord. Just make it show up. And God might be calling us to be obedient in something, to do something for that miracle to come about. Mary believed that Jesus could do this. And you know, this is one of the parts where I wish we had more writing about Jesus' early life. Because even though Jesus had not made his ministry public up to this point, even though he had not done miracles in front of masses and multitudes, you have to know that at home he was doing miracles left and right. I mean, how many miracles did he perform growing up in his own household with his mother and brothers and sisters? How many things did he do around town with individual people that nobody found about that we don't even have recorded in Scripture? And somewhere along the line, Mary had learned that if you have a need, you bring it to Jesus because he can do something about it. And you don't have to tell him how to do it. You don't have to direct him. He knows what is needed. And that's all you have to share. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to experience those miracles? Are we willing to show that our faith is followed by actions? Because, you know, we, we tend to be good about asking, but then sometimes we're not willing to follow up. When God says, okay, do this, and we go, oh, no, 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 that's not what I meant. I wanted you to do it this way. And God says, are you going to be obedient, or uh, are we going to do this my way or my way? And I think in a way, this is what happens here. When we share our need with Jesus, we need to learn to express our faith and then have our ability to follow up with action and believe that he can do the difference in the situation because God always shows his compassion and mercy, and he knows what we need. But Jesus is more than a miracle worker. He's not a genie. You don't get three wishes. Miracles always have a purpose. And his ultimate goal is always salvation and faith and eternal life for each and every one of us. So he's going to do things in our lives that are going to lead us to a closer walk with him. He's going to do things in our lives that are going to strengthen our conviction that he can provide and make a difference. Now, I think that one of the greatest miracles of this story is the fact that the servants are willing to do whatever Jesus says. Jesus sees the jars, there are six of them, 20 to 30 gallons to fill each one. And all you math wizards are already doing math in your head. And he tells them, fill them up with water. So here go the servants, and they're filling these jugs with water, all six of them. And then he says, now pour out from one of them and go take it to the steward. Steward was the one that tasted the wine before everybody else got served. Well, what if I told you to do that and the steward is your boss and you know you just put water in those jars? That takes a lot of faith, folks. To be able to pour that and then take it to the steward, not knowing if you're about to get fired for bringing water to the steward. 
but they do it. And you know, when they bring that, that, that cup to the steward, we are told that the servants know what went in the jars and nobody else there knows. The steward doesn't know. The bridegroom doesn't know. The guests don't know. But they know. And when he tastes the cup, we don't know when it got changed to wine. Did you see that? We don't know when along this path Jesus did the miracle. We just know somewhere along this story, after the water is put into the jars, it becomes wine. Because the steward tasted it. And he was impressed with the wine. He said, this is better than what you've been serving. How come you've saved the best for last? Everybody else gets everybody drunk with the good stuff and then switches to the cheap stuff. Now, for you, those of you that aren't drinkers, this is what people do. They give you all the good stuff to you hammered, and then they bring out the cheap wine that is $3 a bottle. And so he says, how come you have saved the best for last? Now, when we look at this story and we see the miracle that is taking place and we see what has happened, we begin to see a foreshadowing of everything that Jesus did in his ministry. God saved the best for last. Jesus did not come to be one leader or one prophet or one teacher. He came to be the Christ, the Messiah, the one that we would follow. He came to be the best that God had to offer for each and every one of us. And when he pours out his grace, he fills it to the brim. And he gives it abundantly. There was enough wine for the whole village. Six jars of 20 to 30 gallons means a lot of water turned into a lot of wine for that wedding. When Jesus does a miracle, he doesn't do it halfway. He goes all out. Think about all the miracles that Jesus did. And when people think about the miracle of the water into wine, they often think it's the simplest, it's the most basic, and they even wonder why he did it. Yet even in this simple miracle, we see a foreshadowing of how he would give himself for us on the cross how his blood would be shed, and how the good would be saved for last when he would be raised from the dead after three days. The reaction from the miracle in this story was faith. The scripture tells us his disciples believed in him. This is very early on in his ministry when he's getting started. He's just called them. And they see him turn water into wine and you know that Mary and the servants and the family that knew what he had done were brought to more faith when they saw what Jesus did in this miracle. And this would only be the tip of the iceberg of all the miracles that Jesus would do in his ministry. So what do we need to do with this story? I think if nothing else, it teaches us that we need to bring our need before God 
every single time. We don't need to tell him how to fix it. We don't need to tell him our idea of how it needs to be repaired or done or healed. God has his own way of doing that. Make your need known to him. Express your faith in bringing it to him. And then have the ability and the faith to follow through when he calls you to do whatever he calls you to do to make that miracle happen. And then just trust that the God who loved you so much that he gave to the, went to the cross for you will give you that miracle and will do it in your life. Sometimes our timing is not God's timing. We want the miracle right now and God has a different plan. And it's difficult for us to wait. But sometimes we also need to wait on the miracle that God is going to do. Out of all the miracles, this is clearly one of the simplest in many ways. Yet in the brief periscope of Jesus' beginning ministry, there's so much to hope for in this scripture. Because it means that Jesus will take every need, no matter how big or how small, into account. If we bring it before him. And he will do miracles, things that we couldn't expect. And he will still do them today. As I was telling the children, I believe that in a God that still does miracles today. And every day I live praying for miracles. I live praying for miracles in my children. I pray for miracles in our church. I pray for miracles in our community and in our nation with our leaders, I pray for miracles of peace and of reconciliation around the world that is often at conflict. Because I believe in a God that can do that and more when we bring our need before him. Today, as we open the altar, we're going to ask you to bring your need before him. We don't want you to tell him how to fix it. We just want you to bring your need before him. To come to the altar and let us pray for your need. And ask God to do a miracle in your life. To provide healing, to provide support, to provide peace, to provide whatever it is that you are needing in your life. Because we all have needs. Anybody not have needs out there? Okay, good. We're all in the same boat. We all have needs. And we all know a God who can supply our needs abundantly and richly through his mercy. We need to learn to trust. Trust Jesus with our needs. Let us pray. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you because you invite us today to share our needs with you, knowing, O oh Lord, that you already anticipate our needs and already know them. But you want us to share them with you because you want us to trust you to express our faith that you can make a difference in our needs and in our lives, to express our faith that you are still the miracle worker that we read about in Scripture. Oh, Lord, we just ask on this day that as we open our hearts to pour out our needs before you, that we will know that you are listening to our prayers and that you will answer those prayers according to your mercy. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
The altar is open as we continue worship. Let's pray for some miracles today.